Hello, my name's David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. Today we have a special edition. Helen Thompson and I are talking to Hilary Mantel about power, about monarchy and about Thomas Cromwell. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, Europe's leading review of culture and ideas. And the LRB is returning to first principles with their latest exclusive offer for Talking Politics listeners. Get 12 issues of the magazine for just £12 and they'll also send you one of their surprisingly famous tote bags, acclaimed by the likes of New York Magazine and Vice. Just use the URL mylrb.co.uk slash talkingbag. That's mylrb.co.uk slash talking bag. We recorded this episode of Talking Politics in front of a live audience at Conway Hall in London on Tuesday evening. We were partly there with the London Review of Books to celebrate the publication of Mantelpieces in paperback. That is a collection of Hilary Mantel's writings in the LRB over more than 30 years, essays on all sorts of subjects from Madonna to the French Revolution, but also some essays on Tudor history. And that's where we began this conversation talking to Hilary Mantel before we get on to Thomas Cromwell and Henry VIII and present-day politics too, about some of the Tudors you might not be so familiar with. Welcome to everyone here and welcome to everybody who's watching online as well. It is an enormous pleasure for Helen Thompson and myself to be able to talk to Hilary Mantel this evening. Helen and I spent quite a lot of lockdown talking about Hilary's magnificent Thomas Cromwell trilogy, particularly The Mirror and the Light, and we had so many things that we wanted to say about it that we ended up recording a podcast about it without Hilary, and so it's a thrill for us to be able to have some of these conversations with Hilary Mantel. But we're also here to celebrate the publication of Mantelpieces in paperback, and as I'm sure you've heard, it's available to buy after this event. Hillary's writings from the LRB over more than 30 years on a whole range of subjects, but including Tudor history, which is where we're going to start. We'll broaden it out, we'll talk about Cromwell, we'll talk about Henry VIII, but we will make our way to the present too. And then we're going to leave plenty of time for questions questions from the audience here, but also if you have questions online, they will find their way to somebody in the front row who will pass them on to us. So we'll come to that at the end. But Hilary, we thought we would start actually, the last two essays in Mantelpieces are about two Tudor figures, Charles Brandon and Margaret Pole, not nearly as well known as Cromwell and Anne Boleyn and, and the characters in the Wolf Hall trilogy but fascinating in their own right, because though Margaret Pohl, in the end, loses her life, and you use yes. the chilling phrase, in an act of housekeeping, yes. uh, they had to clear out the Tower of London, and so unfortunately she was there. But she was a great survivor to that point, 
She lived, by Tudor standards, a long life, despite being the mother of one of Henry's great enemies. Charles Brandon was his dear friend, and he survived the whole thing. Mm. How did anyone survive that world? What did it take to survive the court of Henry VIII? Well, I think in the case of Charles Brandon, the Duke of Suffolk, uh, he had made one brilliant career move as a young man. He'd married Henry's sister, um, Mary Rose, the youngest of the princesses. Brandon, for one thing, didn't represent a threat to Henry in the way some of the old dynasties did. Um, the Brandons had been gentry, no better, but it was all about, it really was all about, what did your ancestors do at the Battle of Bosworth? Going right back to 1485, the foundation of the Tudor dynasty, and Charles Brandon's grandfather allegedly carried um, the standard, carried the Tudor standard. And this began the family's elevation. And then Charles Brandon, he was a big fellow. He was a kind of body double, double for Henry. Um, he was often taken by foreign ambassadors to be uh, Henry's illegitimate brother. But Charles Brandon was older and he had inducted Henry into the sport of jousting. Um, Charles was thick as mince, as people say these days, which proved a survival factor because his lack of um, the kind of noble family background that made him a rival and his willingness to prance about looking every inch the Tudor but not really interested in real power. Um, this meant that almost everyone could find some point of contact with him that wasn't rivalry. And as I say, he did, he did marry Henry's sister. Uh, Mary Rose was sent to France as a, um, a beautiful story book princess in her late teens to marry the aged King of France and um, it was said that she danced him to death. He, he, was, he was done within a few months. Um, but then, having got the King of France, uh, the, the King of England's sister in his possession, the incoming king, Francis I, detained her um, for reasons of his own. Um, Mary Rose was... She had gone very unwillingly to France and she had apparently extracted a promise from Henry that when she danced him to death, her next husband would be her own choice. After the, the old king's death, Charles Brandon was one of the delegation who went over uh, to try to bring her home, extract her from French custody. Um, and she wanted to marry Charles Brandon. It was, um, you know, as simple as that. Uh, she'd fallen in love, and 
Charles, they had a, they had a bit of a history. They'd, you know, they'd shown a preference for each other before. Henry had warned Charles, do not, do not do the, oh, she's a valuable property, I'm going to marry her to someone else. But Charles said, I never saw a woman so weak. Ah, this is what he wrote home to Henry. So in conclusion, I married her. He married her to stop her crying. <laughs> um, it's, he did have um, a certain endearing streak in his character. Um, Mary Rose didn't last, she didn't have a long life. But he became, in effect, a brother to Henry. And one of the, what, as you say, one of the great survivors mm. of, of the reign. Stephen Gunn wrote this wonderful scholarly biography of him. But, you know, it's a sad fact about um, the people in Henry's reign that having your head cut off is what makes you famous. And Charles is very interesting, but he managed to die in his bed. Although, so did the Duke of Norfolk, who was a dynastic rival to Henry and was in trouble for most of the reign, regularly kicked out of the court and then brought back. But what happened with Norfolk is that he, he got on the wrong side of, Hen of Henry for good and all. It, looked like it. He and his son, the Earl of Surrey, the poet, were both imprisoned. Surrey was executed. Norfolk was due to go to the block the next day. Henry died in the night. <laughs> Just can you imagine? The morning when the door of your, your room creaks open and they say, Your Grace, you're off the hook. <laughs> No, it's not a scene I could write because it happens post-Cromwell. <laughs> Obviously, one of the essays in the book, um, perhaps the, the most famous for various reasons, is called Royal Bodies. Yes. <laughs> and uh, at the heart of monarchy is always the journey of a body from birth, procreation, to death. If you, at least in a hereditary monarchy, if that doesn't happen, there is no... Um, monarchy. So in one sense, it's kind of predictable that a, a big story about this particular dynasty, uh, where you have a king who has difficulty producing a male heir and understands, as you have him tell Cromwell at one point, look, if the king can't do this, the king can't do anything at all. It doesn't matter what else that the king does. But why do you think this is such a powerful story about fertility and the body and what happens to it. Because as you say, I think, I think it's in that essay, is, is you could just tell the story of Henry and, and his wives by body parts and whether the body parts yes. are diseased or whether they're fit for purpose. Yes, I suppose this business of physicality is, is the way, it uh, gets to the heart of the way we're fascinated by royal personage because... Love, marriage, sex, procreation, children, the loss of children. They run through all our lives, they're the backbone of our lives. But in this way, in, you know, our private difficulties, private tragedies 
are writ large in the public sphere. It all consternates around this subject of the monarch's reproductive powers. And Henry expresses the view in my book, as he, in the mirror and the light, as he ages, he says, they, they say if the king is sick, then the Commonwealth is sick. And if I'm not in good health, then England cannot be in good health. And it's, it, it's a simple, but it's an age-old and powerful um, folk belief, I suppose you could say. It's almost ingrained. It's the stuff of magic, of poetry, of Arthurian legend. But it's written on the bodies of real people. And in Wolf Hall, I... I have Mr. Risley say that however powerful, however clever, however dedicated the king's ministers are, they can't give him a son. The only thing is, you know, only a woman can do this, but which woman? And Anne Boleyn is pregnant at the time uh, he's saying this, and, and he, he says... What a pity they haven't got a transparent panel so that we can look through them and see what's inside. So it's not only a question of reproduction, but the, there is a riddle here, there is a mystery about femininity and its power that the men in the rain can't solve. And of course, this is the era as well where the feminine is being dethroned. The virgins, the statues of Mary, all over England are being pulled down and defaced, and the image is being replaced by the word. And we will go on, of course, into a couple of reigns later, we will have Elizabeth, the Virgin Queen, as a sort of reassertion of all those frozen, fallen idols. If you think of her in portraits in her later days, this absolutely frozen figure who could be carved in stone. And it, it's... These are not things that people... They are not topics of political discourse. They are under... They're running under political discourse. I'm fascinated by the operation at a symbolic level, of the translation into symbol and magic uh -huh. of political tropes. Just, ever, just one more thing on this. I was thinking as I was um, reading bits of the books again over the last um, few weeks, um, that actually, if you think, you know, go back to the, the book of Genesis and like the birth of Israel, and you have these three women with fertility problems at the beginning of the story, yes. Sarah, um, Rebecca and Rachel. So it seems to me that perhaps there's kind of something like primordial about this idea of a, of a new country being born, a new England being born in that case, in, the, in our case, a new or Israel being born, where you need a kind of struggle over fertility and that, that actually that's part of why that this touches us so deeply because it's not just an English story, it's a really old story about the birth of something, yes. of, of a kingdom being tied up with women's fertility in, in the, the, yes. the case of the Bible, the, the problems of women's fertility. That, that's right. The, the, 
the symbols, the equivalences are absolutely timeless and universal. And we haven't left it entirely behind, so we're living absolutely. in an age where the Queen spends a night in hospital and something, there's something out there in the ether which no one quite knows how to think about it or report on it. And there is a, an obsession with it and with, yes. with the passage of a human life, a single human life, which is completely outside of democratic politics. So in the sense that the rhythms of democratic politics, the births and deaths of political careers, are nothing like the life of the Queen. It's hanging over us very heavily, isn't it? Uh, if you think about what's been happening in this country and through the world, of course, in the last couple of years, what other time except during... Well, it wouldn't happen during the war. You switch on the evening news and the first thing you hear is how many people have died. And the mortality figures dominate every day. I was going to say it would happen in a war, but of course in a war they would lie about it. Um, <laughs> but all we have heard for a couple of years now is the young are dying, the old are dying, we cannot get to them, we cannot comfort them, we cannot access them. And so last week when the Queen spent that night in hospital, I, I got a, a couple of um, contacts right away, people asking me to write about it, um, saying either, well, basically saying quite boldly, um, can you write an article about the imminent death of the Queen? <laughs> and I began to feel I was being made into a vulture. And, it, and of course, because... Um, I may not be a monarchist, but I'm not a brute. Uh, I think, well, what is it like to be the child of a woman or to be the woman herself, knowing that every breath is being counted? And I, I was thinking about royal bodies in another way as well last week because somebody approached me about painting a portrait of me. And it was someone who was painted the Queen. So I wanted to look at her work. And, um, and then I, I got very interested and I started bringing up images, image after image. Um, I, I don't know how many times the Queen has been painted or her image reproduced. Hundreds, it seemed. It, almost as if she spent a whole rain sitting for a portrait, but I suppose they take some photographs and then she sends them away and they get on with it. But anyway, as you know, most of these portraits are just hideous. They're just so pitch. <laughs> and, of course, it encapsulates the whole problem. How do you portray a modern monarch? There are the ones in which, you know, the Anagoni-type portraits, in which... She is portrayed as a mythical figure, as what a Britannia figure, a, a conqueror, and she's wearing sweeping dramatic um, um, clothes and so on. But, but then there's her lovely sort of 1950s curly perm that looks as if it was done by Darlene at uh, headlines on the corner, you know? And it doesn't fit 
with this mythological personage at all. And then there are the ones where she doesn't look like a queen at all, but she just looks like someone's grandma, which of course she is. And both, I mean, they seem to be completely missing the point. And the portrait painters are congratulated for portraying her as an ordinary person. It's hard to see what else they can do. Anyway, I decided my favourite image, and now I can't think who did it, but it's kind of print, and it's more or less simply a head, not head and shoulders, just a head. Um, almost as if it were a stamp, but the person is looking at you instead of being in profile. And the Queen's got her eyes closed. And I thought, Yes, I'd close my eyes too. I wouldn't want to see you not. I wouldn't want to see my subjects who were all waiting for me to die. What she looks is she looks exa um, exasperated. <laughs> and I wouldn't be at all surprised if that is, has been the reigning emotion at the palace for quite a time now. I suppose it could also symbolise a shutting out of reality. Mm. And I said that the rhythm of democratic life was so different, but we had a moment during the pandemic when Boris Johnson went into intensive care where suddenly the whole tenor of politics shifted and it, it, you know, it wasn't a million miles away from that extraordinary moment that you tell it's in Bring Up the Bodies when Henry is injured in the jousting accident and Cromwell has to bring him back to life because everything yeah. hangs in the balance. It, well, it, it hangs in the balance. And we're so unused to it in our political life but in Cromwell's world, a death changes everything, and death is always around the corner. Well, exactly, because if, um, if that had been Boris's moment to go, there'd be another Tory along in a minute. But that wasn't the <laughs> although, case. Although his Cromwells Cromwell. wouldn't have done too <laughs> he well. Couldn't. Um, <laughs> we'll come on to his Cromwells. A bit, it right? was a question of then who's... Um, uh, who's the heir? Is it the Princess Mary from the first marriage? Is it the child in Anne Boleyn's womb? So there is, um, you know, some impromptu and rough resuscitation performed on Henry. I'm only guessing. I mean, the whole incident is so completely obscure. We only learn of it in retrospect. Uh, it was, as it were, wiped out of the record. But Cromwell's life, he, as you describe it, he feels his life hangs in the balance with every breath yes. of his king. It's his life. But isn't uh, it more, actually, that, that on the other side of, the, in this case, as far as Cromwell's concerned, of Henry stopping breathing, is civil war. Is this kind of, England gets plunged back into darkness at yes. the point. And I don't think, whatever had happened in the pandemic, if Boris Johnson hadn't come out of that hospital, we wouldn't have been plunged into darkness. I think that's what makes the, the difference, is, is that... <laughs> is it, there, is a, there was a certain symbolism to it, like it was more than just the Prime Minister, but I think that was partly to do with the history of, of, of Brexit. Is, is, but it's not that the whole, the whole kingdom and the, the, the escape, if, if you want to go back into Hobbes' language, like the state of nature can't depend upon the Prime Minister's body in the way in which it yeah. could defend, depend on Henry's body at that moment. And maybe it doesn't always in monarchy, but it does... When, you, when you're the only second monarch in a new dynasty and what came before it was civil war? Well, 
This is true. I mean, the Tudors had kept the peace for 40 years, uh, whereas the era before had been an era of, of, of considerable, of, well, very long-running strife. When we call it the Wars of the Roses, it always sounds so cute, but there were some very miserable and bloody battles fought. And what, you know, what you have under the Tudors is, well, great conditions for early capitalism, really. Uh, peace, flourishing trade. You need to keep the peace for the country's economic development. And you know, Cornwall very much had an eye on this. So I don't think... Um, this was really special pleading on, 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 on behalf of the Tudors. I think they did value and, and feel that England needed that stability. Um, and, and so the dynastic question, it becomes absolutely crucial to the reign. And, you know, this is one of the wonderful things about, as a woman author, writing about this era, because you don't, have to force your female figures into the story. You don't have to pretend that they were more important than they were. They because they were absolutely central. And there, you know, and, and again, here's the paradox. Catherine of Aragon, Anne Boleyn, Catherine Parr, these were very remarkable women in their own right. But what they get reduced to is womb. And one of the things I, I talked about in that essay, Royal Bodies, is how, you know, as with those portraits of the Queen, where she's either Granny or Britannia, there's, there's this inherent contradiction. Are we talking about gods or are we talking about animals? Because at one point they are ridiculously exalted beyond all human sense and yet reduced to vaginas, um, wombs, public property and of course this isn't something that's waned with time, it's intensified with time. The prurient curiosity around a pregnant princess um, or the, or the marriage of a princess who is expected to be pregnant very quickly. This was what started off royal bodies, in a sense. It was, it was before Kate was the mother, when she was a bride. And already he, you, you felt her person being impinged upon. It wasn't, you know, as it was taken to be. Um, hostile to to monarchy because I said, you know, in a sense, I don't care about it all that much. I think there were, I didn't mean to become a royal watcher. I, I came, I be, oh, or the go-to person when you think the queen is dying. Um, to me, you know, the modern monarchy is is way down the list of issues um, that the nation ought to be discussing. But 
It was strange what happened then because I ended the essay by saying to the press, don't do what you did to Diana. Back off and don't be brutes. Um, but somehow, when this had been filtered through the press, and perhaps I shouldn't be surprised, it became um, a horribly offensive diatribe directed at the monarchy, which it, it wasn't at all, and led to um, people, um, led to a couple of papers sending people down to besiege me at my house. And, and what was so funny about it was how uninformed they were because they'd been sent off to catch this horrible woman um, but they weren't armed with a picture or anything like that. So they parked, they, they know I roughly where I live, you know, on the seafront. So then any woman of a certain age and a certain bulk <laughs> who came out of her house They'd run up to her saying, are you Hilary Mantel? Well, Budley Salterton, can you imagine how this goes down? <laughs> they don't even admit the existence of low papers there, let alone talk to them. So none of my neighbours would um, admit to where I lived. And I just drew the blinds. And my publisher sent me a food parcel. <laughs> and, and it and went away. It. Yes. <laughs> yes, but I had no idea what was going to be detonated there. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Want truly hydrated skin? Medocia's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu com code SUMMER. So one of the things, if we go back to, to Cromwell and, and the trilogy, and I'm sure many, many people here have read the books, and one of the things that's so distinctive about them is that the line between the living and the dead is not at all clear, in the sense that everyone is haunted. I mean, yes. there are ghosts everywhere. Cromwell is haunted. Henry is haunted. Henry's haunted by his dead brother. The, the, the dead speak to the living. Yes. And in a way, I don't... I don't know, I mean, this is a genuine question. It feels very remote in some ways from us. That particularly is an account of sort of high politics, where so much of it is filtered through the voices of people who aren't actually there. And yet it's not yeah. that remote from us. Well, I think, actually, the ghosts can be equated with intuition. They are like your inner voice. They're your conscience speaking to you. So, ghosts are what they call them, but they could equally well call them guilt-talking or shame-talking. Um, and, and, again, you see, someone like Cromwell, this is very interesting to me. I, I've done something that, if I'd thought about it this way, I might not have attempted it. It seems to me that he was not an introspective man. 
He was not a man with a rich inner life. Or if he was, it's inaccessible. He's not like Thomas More, telling you about the state of his soul at every turn. Cromwell tells you nothing. The letters she writes are official letters. And when you find a little outburst of temper or passion between the lines, you hoard it like a fine gemstone because it's so rare. So my concept of him is that he, he's the person who's outward directed. He doesn't retrospect. It's like, you know, if you were facing fast bowling, you can't think about the ball that went before. You've got to look straight ahead and it's next ball, please. And that, it's rather Thatcherite. You know, you do not suspect that this person goes home and agonises. So, having decided that Cromwell was this sort of person, I then undertook to write from the inside of him, as it were. So I have to ask myself, how does such a person correspond with their inner self? What do they do when... They are perplexed and don't know where to turn. Well, Cromwell thinks, what would Wolsey have done? And because everyone's sense of the next life and the afterlife is so strong, and there are no unbelievers, then it is natural to think, of Wolsey's living presence. I mean, this is how we do it in our play, um, because people have said, well, how are you going to put this on stage? Because the mirror and the light is so much about Cromwell's interiority. Um, how will you represent that on stage? Well, when, when he's having a hard time and he's puzzled, then simply... A big fat scarlet ghost pops up <laughs> and tells him what he already knows but can't formulate or can't access. And I think that's what, what ghosts mm. do for us, whether we're then or now. But isn't there also this sense of the ghosts that he is creating, the ghosts of the, the Catholic England that he's destroying? There's that scene in um, Mirror and the Light with Norfolk. I can't remember. Sometimes you're in the pilgrimage of grace yes. where basically Norfolk's really had it with him because he's basically desecrated his ancestors' graves. Yeah. And, he's go and, he, uh, uh, and it's this stuff that, that Cromwell doesn't actually have some ability to understand. That's quite a Catholic idea of thinking about these things. They're well, actually going to come back and play their part in, in, in his hubris, the part that he doesn't understand and that will, in the end, finish him off. Well, of course, we, we, you know, we think of Norfolk as one of the defenders of, of the old faith, but he didn't actually lift a finger for it. When the, when the monasteries were dissolved, he was there holding out his hand. Everybody suspected he was a secret papist, but... He regarded his pocket first. And, and the, what happened with the Duke of Norfolk is that um, 
in uh, early 1540, he, he, he went to France um, basically to foment plots against Cromwell. And um, Cromwell dissolved Stafford Abbey, where the Duke's ancestries were, uh, ancestors lay. Um, and, and actually, Dermot McCullough thinks that this was quite an important factor that spring because the Duke and Cromwell had always managed to work together somehow. They had this very fragile rapprochement, but it was as if they'd suddenly declared war on each other. But I, th I think, I mean, I agree with that, but I think the problem for the Duke was that it cost a lot of money to rebury his um, ancestors at Framlingham. <laughs> and um, I, I think he was a man strictly with an eye on his ledgers more than his Bible. Well, not his Bible at all, in fact. I should say more than uh, his prayer book. You know, the Duke said that um, I have never read the scriptures and I never will. Uh, and I, I wish that all things should be as they were in times past. And this was his declaration, but we couldn't, shouldn't take it too seriously because he was up for any new money-making scheme. Um, and I think... But these things are not incompatible, are they, with each other? People I'm can, sorry? These things aren't incompatible with each other. People can be obsessed with money and still have a sort of sentimental view of... Yes, like that's right. I, I don't think we should regard him primarily as a spiritually motivated being. But you see, I think there's something that Cromwell understood, understood well and could work with such people. Um, you know, one thing he said was, uh, I think was rather important, was that People don't like change unless it puts them in better ease. And in a nutshell, well, that's the credo of a pragmatic politician. And his career was a quite, it was a question of how can we create this better ease, uh, which meant, I, as I say, creating the conditions in which early capitalism could flourish, mm -hmm. um, creating a strong economy, creating trading links. Uh, but I think there have been worse manifestos. It's not, um, well, I think you would call it a manifesto, not a creed. It's, it's highly practical. Well, thinking about the difference between then and now, so we still have ghosts in our politics, but they're still alive in the sense so that... And even Blair. I mean, the thing about our ghosts, I mean, yeah, Blair and Brown ghosts. have been on TV yes. haunting us with their memories of the new yeah. Labour years. David Cameron, it, 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 Donald Trump, I mean, the, the difference then and now is that they really did shuffle off the scene and then they have to be recreated as, as inner voices. And one of the oddities of democratic politics, because we vote them out of office, but we allow them to continue talking, is we are haunted still. It feels a bit like, I mean, Jeremy Corbyn haunts politics, yeah. and they're still here and they pop up. It's, it's, it's a difference. And, and people talk about the Corbyn era, 
as, as if in uh, 40 years back at least. You know, uh, it, the ghosts are circulating faster and faster. They're really nimble and fleet-footed these days. Yeah, and it's, it's, uh, it, what's so fascinating about reading about Cromwell and, and Henry's court is we still have court politics. I mean, there is still a court of yeah. Boris Johnson. There was a God, there was a court of Donald Trump. You know, it was, it was positively yeah. medieval, as people said, or early modern. And yet, it's not a world where death stalks the corridors of power. Um, what stalks the corridors of power is the loss of power. But it's not a total loss of power. It's certainly not a total loss of influence. Mm -hmm. And they circulate round. Yes. It's a... It's, Cromwell's story, Henry's story is so modern and it's so distant because death is real. That's not a question, is it? No, it's just not, it's not. <laughs> but there is a way which is. Thank you. This is another different kind of observation, but there's a certain parallel, though, because the other thing that's there in the Tudor world is these fake people. You know, the people who are pretending to be somebody who could be an heir to the throne. So the people who are pretending to be um, Margaret Pole's brother. You know, for instance, who are posing all these problems to these? I'm fascinated by the imposters. Yeah. Yes. I mean, I the, the people who come out of the grave and haunt the pre, um, whoever is the current king with an army behind them. Um, particularly, you know, in the early reign of of Henry the Seventh, which is fascinating because he's plagued by the princes in the t tower rising from the grave um, by ghosts of the living people impersonating the young girl of Warwick whom he has shut in the tower and he can produce him alive but that doesn't stop him multiplying elsewhere in Europe uh, and those, those stories are fascinating because, again, it brings us back to the royal body and what does it mean to impersonate a royal person. Um, particularly, this, you know, this, this brilliant story um, that runs through Henry VIII's, uh, Henry VII's reign of the impersonator who should be known as Peter Warbeck but it's actually always called Perkin Warbeck, which was a shrewd move by Tudor propagandists because it stopped posterity taking him seriously at all. I would love to write a novel about Peter Warbeck, but I can't cope with a character called Perkin. I'm sorry, I just can't do it. <laughs> and Adam Rowe um, wrote a brilliant book about this particular pretender. Um, we, we had this discussion because, you know, she said, yes, she too had thought the novel form with its slipperiness and ambiguity is perfect for this. I think the question about royal pretenders is, do they start to believe their own pretense at some stage? And as well, it kind of is in some tension, isn't it, with the bodies, because it should just be about you have to have a royal body. Mm. And actually, you've got all these people saying it doesn't really matter because I can be, I can impersonate somebody else's body. And it's because actually monarchy is a fairly fragile form of government in a dynastic sense that these pretenders arise. Because there's always someone who's actually going to be, at least in English history at that point, there's always someone who's actually going to be threatening to take the throne away. To, to, take, to take the throne away. Yes. 
Yes. And, um, and so if you, could be, if you can pretend to be one of the people who've got some claim from the previous dynasty, then you can play in this game of royal bodies, but fake bodies, not real bodies. Even at the same time as everybody's obsessed with the actual bodies of the ones who've got their royal blood. Uh, and in, in Tudor times as well, it was so much about what, what hangs on that body. Mm. Because um, Peter Warbeck, could, in Ireland, he'd, um, he'd worked for a silk merchant. He was, in effect, a male model. You dressed Perkin up and you sent him walking about the city in beautiful clothes and people said, who did that doublet for you? <laughs> and popped along to his master. But um, so magnificent was Perkin in his silks that people started to nudge each other and say, well, he could be the dead Duke of York, couldn't he? Uh, and of course, this is a world in which, you know, I find it very moving People didn't know what their grandparents looked like. Just, I mean, it's a simple thought, but it's, it, it's a very profound one. Think back to an era before photographs, and it's not that long ago. And um, in, in Tudor England, identity could be fudged and falsified, and that obviously includes royal identity. So it isn't so much something special about the royal body, but something special about the presentation of, of the body. People had no idea even what Henry VIII looked like. Copies of portraits can only circulate so far. And probably in, in I almost said in my day, but you know what I mean, the day I'm writing about. Um, the, Probably the best-known face in Europe was Martin Luther because of the enormous uh, efficiency of the German printing industry and the number of images there were in circulation. Uh, and so people may have known what, what Luther looked like without knowing what their own king looked like. Mm. And in, in Mantelpieces, you also write about French revolutionary politics in your mm -hmm. great novel, A Place of Greater Safety, and you write about Danton, Robespierre, and court politics is court politics, and high politics is high politics, but by the time of the French Revolution, we also have the crowd, and the crowd isn't really a presence in the Tudor story. I mean, it is a bit, there's a, there's a performative aspect to it, yes. but it's highly controlled, yes. and something breaks loose with the, the birth of modern politics, which is at the end of yes. the 18th century. How, when you write about that, how does it change it, having this extra character in the story, which essentially is the public? There isn't, there yes. isn't that kind of public in the Tudor world. Yes, I, um, of course, I wrote A Place of Greater Safety a long, long time ago, long before the Tudors mm. were in my mind. Um, also, I, you know, I began writing it in the 70s, and it was really, I suppose, our interest in the crowd. Uh, it was there, but history was 
not so sociological, more political. If, if, you know, the kind of material that was available to me was not really encouraging you to think about sociological phenomena. Um, and then, then everything changed, and we wanted to forget all about the middle-class revolutionaries and their troubles, and we wanted to concentrate on working-class people and, and the... And, the formation of public opinion and so on. But I was aware of it because, you know, very early in uh, A Place of Greater Safety, one of the older characters who was a Treasury official says one day, I remember when we didn't have public opinion because um, what he is saying is we used to be able to keep affairs of state to ourselves we at the Treasury, them at the palace. We ran things between us. Uh, we controlled circulation of information. And then the king decided, as it were, to throw open politics by calling the estates general. And debate could no longer be suppressed. And what I, I mean, the, the crowd, the popular figures, um, the, the popular movement is a kind of background noise, I suppose, in the novel. Because had I wanted to write about popular leaders, there wasn't the, um, there wasn't the information, there isn't the information. And it being a novel, you've got to pick your people. Now, maybe today I would make different choices, but, you know, the educated middle-class lawyers was where I went. But I'm always sensitive to this issue because I think, actually, in, in one of the pieces in, in the book, I, the, the writer... Ruth Skirl, whose biography of Robespierre, I enjoyed very much. I did take it to task on one point, saying the plural of Parisian is not mob. <laughs> and again and again, you get this very consequential carelessness in discourse that turns any gathering of citizens in the revolution into a mob, oh. which arouses my indignation. Okay, the, so this is the last one. That we thought we should ask one Dominic Cummings question. <laughs> uh, and it's this, which is, one can just about imagine Dominic Cummings in the world of Henry VIII. One can just about imagine Thomas Cromwell in the world of Boris Johnson. Which one do you think would be better equipped to navigate... The other, the other world. Oh, I'll give Cromwell a mobile phone and he'd rule the world. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was amazing what feats those people performed. Um, okay, I know it does, it's not glamorous stuff and it doesn't sound very exciting, but Cromwell undertook to survey the property of the church which in England was huge and extensive. He did it in six months. 
And the figures were good and the figures were accurate. And I am told that in some respects the Victorians were still relying on them. When the job got done, it stayed done. What Cromwell was very good at was showing people how to work for him. So you go to a certain institution and you ask 86 questions. Come back with the answers to these 86 questions. We know everything and we'll compare them with the 86 answers to the next institution. So this kind of, okay, as I say, it doesn't sound very glamorous, but intellect at the top and then that organized kind of intellect that knows how to get the job done. I think what's always engaged me about Thomas Cromwell is his creativity. Um, and I think creativity in politics is quite a rare quality as opposed to uh, a desperate grubbing for novelty. Um, and he was someone who saw the big picture but could also take care of every detail. And I suppose ultimately that, that was why I wanted to spend all those years in his company, simply because I thought he was a very clever man and I thought by hanging around with him I might get a bit smarter. <laughs> If you're interested in getting a hold of a copy of Mantelpieces, the collection of Hilary Mantel's writings, that's available from the LRB bookshop. Just go to lrb.co.uk. Coming up soon on Talking Politics, we are going to be looking in depth at the climate crisis, the energy transition, and all the politics that goes along with that. My name is David Runciman, and we've been Talking Politics. Talking Politics.